0: we share as we tarry there none other has ever known I certainly don't ever want to get up in the pulpit and not be thankful for the opportunity to preach. Uh, as I've said many times before, the Word of God is powerful and is relevant. Uh, I've—I seems like in the last few decades that's been the call of so much uh, progressivism and those kinds of things where they're just... Going whichever way the wind blows and the justification is so often, well, we're just trying to make the Word of God relevant and completely ignoring the fact that the Word of God is relevant and always has been relevant and always will be relevant. We are not calling the Word of God to us or the Holy Spirit to us. He's the one doing the calling. He's the one doing the work. And we're actually going to see that tonight. So 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3, and you'll figure out pretty quickly, he dives right into the deep end, and in typical Peter fashion. So if you would please stand, we're going to go ahead and read there in uh, chapter 3, or I'm sorry, verse 3 of chapter 1. Uh, down through verse 11. So he says in verse 3, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Now, His divine power, of course, that's Jesus Christ. Being the very God Himself, it's through His divine power that He has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him that hath called us, to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. Notice how that list begins with faith and ends with love. "'For if these things be in you,' he says in verse 8, "'and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful "'in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. "'But he that lacketh these things is blind.'" and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. I heard a preacher's put it this way one time, you look mighty stupid running around with your hands behind your back when you've been set free. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 10, Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There is no possible way that we can deal with all of that tonight. But I think we can get started here and see what uh, uh, kind of the basis for what many commentators have termed Peter's farewell message. That this is, is the, sets the tone for the book, and everything that comes after this is building upon this message, uh, having to do with the false teachers and all of that kind of stuff. But there are some prerequisites to, to everything that he's going to be talking about throughout this, uh, throughout this letter, throughout this epistle. Because it starts with God's power. It starts with His strength in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We Thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit would be with us tonight, that above all, you'd be honored and glorified through what happens. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. The most succinct way, I think, to phrase the main theme of this epistle is this. Grow in grace. I didn't come up with that. But that's really probably the the easiest, clearest way to to put how Peter or what Peter's talking about in this letter. The false teachers that he's going to deal with, especially in chapter 2, saw no need to grow. They denied the final judgment. Their mantra was essentially to live however you want to live, because God is not involved in the affairs of man. Uh, Really, to its logical extreme, this belief would lead one to denying, pardon me, the very idea of God. There is no Creator. All that happens is based on chance. So how you live, whether or not you're a Christian, is completely up to you. There won't be an eternal reward or punishment because there's no final judgment. You may have heard it put this way in our modern times. Hakuna Matata. (laughs) I'm going to make some of you mad here real quick. (laughs) Live how you want. Do what feels good to you. And those teachers would defend that lifestyle. And isn't that how our culture lives today? That's what was so appealing about the false teachers. They could put themselves under the umbrella of Christianity and then teach whatever they wanted. And when they were confronted about their wicked living, they defended it. So Christians, families, whole churches were falling for this evil teaching that God isn't involved in the world, God isn't involved in our everyday lives, so we can pretty much do what we want. No need to live in fear of judgment because there is none. But contrary to this false belief, God is involved in the affairs of men. God has been involved in the affairs of men since, since creation. He is so involved, He cares so much that He sent His Son to take the punishment for our sins on the cross. And just like we saw back in 1 Peter, he didn't just take them to the cross and lay them there at the feet of the cross. No, he bore our sins on himself on that cross. His sacrifice paid the penalty for sin, and it wasn't the price to be paid to Satan. It was the price to be paid to God, because it's God's righteousness and God's holiness that was defied by sin. And through that, he provided justification for all who would believe in him. The focus of this chapter is really on what God has given us. The first gift God has graciously granted us is justification. Oh, we saw that last week, that they had obtained, those, or a couple weeks ago, that they had obtained uh, like precious faith with us. And it wasn't through their own work. It wasn't through their own uh, pulling themselves up and and earning it and pleasing God. No, it was through the righteousness of God. That term justification is the theological term for it. There is a God the Creator of the universe. He is active in the world. He didn't just create the cosmos and leave them to their own devices. His power is what sustains the universe today. We can see that in the first chapter of Hebrews. We'll see it throughout the Psalms and throughout Job. Even if we were to go back to Colossians 1, verse 17, it says that He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Okay. Okay. Since there is a God, and the Scriptures reveal Him as the power that keeps the universe together, it follows that He would keep tabs on His creation. That He would keep His creation accountable to Him. We see that in chapter 2. You might say, okay, in what way? Well, He didn't spare the angels that rebelled against Him. He didn't spare the ancient world, a a world that was primarily influenced by the wicked legacy of Cain. They built a civilization, but it was all done for their own glory, and that their name would be in the history books. Yet God judged them, and only Noah and his family were spared. Today, the archaeological world knows essentially nothing of that time. Their legacy really lived on, didn't it? God judged Sodom and Gomorrah too. We're not going to go back to Genesis and see the vile things that those cities did, but there's a reason the term Sodomite is still used even today. That evil lifestyle was condemned and judged by God and Sodom was just an example to the rest of Canaan. The rest of the land was given an extra 400 plus years to repent, but they never did. And judgment came in the form of Israel conquering the land. Peter goes on in chapter 2 to speak of Balaam, who was contracted by the king of Midian to curse the Israelites. While God turned the curse into a blessing, Balaam still figured out a way to weasel his way around it, to give counsel to the king that they would uh, uh, invite them to their feasts and their, their sacrifices and marry into them and all that kind of stuff. And guess what? Balaam faced judgment for it. The reality is that God will require an accounting of His creation. Every person will stand before their Creator and answer for their lives. And because every human is a sinner, judgment will come in in the form of eternal damnation in the lake of fire. That's where justification comes in. You can't earn justification. You can't obey the law well enough. The law showed us that we can't be perfect enough. The law pointed to Christ. And in the face of those insurmountable odds, God simply requires faith from us. What you can't earn, He freely gives. Abraham believed God, and Paul says it was accounted unto him for righteousness. We saw last time that it's not our righteousness, it's His. When we put our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, He attributes His righteousness to us. That's justification. Just as if I had never sinned, because He never did. Then when a person is justified, another process begins. This process is called sanctification. I want you to look down at verse 3. It says, According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Now the term divine power uh, isn't used a whole lot in the New Testament. Most of the time you'll see it uh, phrased as the power of God. Uh, The two two phrases are synonymous. uh, But really the rest of this passage falls under this phrase. Okay? So what we need to understand from the outset is all of this falls under His divine power. Okay? It's His power that brought about salvation. His power working in us is all we need to live a godly life on this earth. Just like in salvation, there is nothing you can add to Jesus. Jesus. And so often we look at the circumstances of our life, whether, we're, whether we've fallen into those or whether we've brought it on to ourselves uh, through our own dumb actions, we would look around and we say, well, if God would just do this great thing, I could overcome this circumstance or this sin. Or, or, if, or if He would just give me the same faith that that guy has. Or if God would just provide me with the money I need or the time I need, or the things I need to make my life better, then I could live a holy life. No. You must stop and accept the fact that He has already given you what you need to live a God-honoring life. It's not money. It's not time. It's not physical strength. It's not health. It's His power and His alone and He has already given it to you. You have everything you need, and it's through the knowledge of Him that, has, that hath called us to glory and virtue. So verse 3, According his, as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So, some might look at that and say, Well, okay. He's talking about knowledge. That's what we need. We need knowledge. And knowledge uh, uh, will will give us uh, the power to live a successful life. We can gain salvation. We can be enlightened, whatever term they want to use. And it's through knowledge. It's so prevalent in our world today. People put their faith in knowledge, education. But that's not what Peter's talking about. When he talks about knowledge throughout this Uh, epistle he is specifically talking about knowledge of Jesus him that hath called us this knowledge isn't through your own personal investigation it came through Jesus calling us he is the instigator of salvation he is the one who calls people to repentance But I want you to notice that last phrase. You read it and say, "...through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue." And you might go, well, okay. He's called us to glory and virtue. So does that then mean that Christ has called us to attain lives of glory and virtue? Now that word for glory, doxa, is closer related to the word for honor. In fact, the two are used uh, almost interchangeably a lot of times through first century Greek literature. And the word for virtue has to do with goodness, uh, being good, but it's often used in the context of wealth and achievements and the praise and honor that those things bring. So in other words, one could look at this and think that, well, is Christ calling His followers to live lives that bring themselves honor and wealth and achievements? Fame, to, to live a good life and that will bring you good things? Health and wealth and happiness? But that doesn't really make sense from what we saw in 1 Peter. Well, look at verse 4. It says, whereby... Okay, that's a lot like wherefore or therefore. In other words, when he's talking about whereby, uh, he's... I think I may have skipped something here. No, I didn't. Okay, good. Sorry about that. He's he's talking about uh, the calling... That was all Jesus doing, okay? So the calling uh, that he's talking about there in verse 3, whereby, by that calling, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. We didn't gain our knowledge of Him through our own discovery. He called us to that knowledge. That calling came on the basis of His achievements, Whatever honor we have or we gain is not ours, but his. We, as justified believers in Christ, are called to a life of sanctification in which he receives glory and honor through his work in us. So, he's not calling us to attain uh, glory and virtue and honor and all of that to ourselves, but rather through his achievements, he is worthy of the honor of bestowing upon us salvation and sanctification. Well, I try to live a good life. It won't work. Well, oh, I don't hurt other people. I don't break the law. That's not it. True virtue, true goodness is found in living a life that is completely submitted to Christ's working in us. Through His working in us, we can expect great and precious promises. Now, Peter never really mentions what these great and precious promises are, but I think we know them. Christ has promised us eternal life with Him. He's promised us to be uh, be with us every moment of our lives. He's promised that all of the suffering and persecution we receive on earth will be vindicated when He is revealed in the last day. He promised to hold us in His hand so that the power of sin and Satan cannot remove us from it. He promised reward for those who serve him. These are exceeding great and precious promises, aren't they? But the fact of the matter is that Peter's primary interest is not the promises themselves, but on the benefits we receive through them, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So the first benefit we have is that now we can participate in the divine nature. So we've already seen his divine power. Now we see the divine nature. Now, many scholars note that one of the major differences between this letter and the first letter of Peter is the vocabulary and the heavy Greek influence. Uh, You have to remember that the time really even in the first century, was so heavily influenced by, uh, by Greek culture. I mean, from the time of Alexander the Great down to the time of Cleopatra is considered the Hellenistic period that would be the Greek period where, where they had conquered much of the known world and they were still incredibly uh, um, uh, influential in the Roman government and throughout the Roman world. The term divine nature was used a lot in Greek writings. This is the only time this term is used in the New Testament. Many of the Greek philosophers incorporated elements of divinity and divine nature into their philosophies. Uh, Some believed one could achieve divinity by studying or meditating. Others believed that every person carried a bit of the divine in them, so through different methods one uh, could become one with God. Some would say that men are immortal beings trapped in mortal bodies. Well, that's to a certain extent true because we all have immortal souls, but their belief was that when a person died, they would be released to be immortal and incorruptible. Likely, the false teachers made a big deal of divine nature in their teachings. Ultimately, this thought boiled down to earning or attaining godhood. Can you sense a lot of what we now know as New Age thinking in this? It quickly departs from living for and believing a holy God who requires something of His creation to the idea that God is in you and you just have to find that part of yourself. But the philosophers and false teachers were all wrong. So what does it mean for the believer to partake of the divine nature? Because Peter is not talking about this in the same light that the Greek philosophers or the false teachers were talking about it. Well, to answer that, let's look at the second benefit. Look at the end of verse 4. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. One man put it this way. "...in Greek cosmology, there was a dualism between the divine realm and the world. This was expressed in terms of mortality versus immortality, incorruption versus corruption, unchanging versus changing, and the like. That is, the divine realm was above all change, including the changes implied in death and corruption. Furthermore, human souls were sometimes viewed as imprisoned in the mortal changing world and in need of escape." The question then arises, has Second Peter imported Greek dualism into Christian thought? The answer to this question is in the negative. Peter is certainly aware that there is corruption in the world. But the corruption of the world is not because the world is physical, material, as the Greeks believed. The corruption is because of sin. Or like he puts this way, lust. Some have taken this to mean that, well, the benefits Peter's talking about have to do with the eternal realm, with eternity after we're no longer here on the earth. So we'll be glorified in Christ and thus we'll be immortal and incorruptible. But really, the eternal realm is not in view as that escape, because this whole context, he's talking about our lives here on the earth. These false teachers needed to be resisted. They were immortal, immoral and wicked. Peter submits that the divine nature is connected to holiness, purity, goodness, and virtue. So their participation in the divine nature, his readers, their participation in the divine nature would have to do with receiving a moral nature like God's. To partake of the divine nature is not to find the divinity in yourself, but to receive that nature from the divine. In other words, salvation. Justification. They had received what they needed from God to live righteous, holy lives here on this earth through justification. That's the first benefit. We cannot be righteous and holy outside of God because we are marred by sin. And thus our ethics, our morality are suspect in all things. So he made justification possible through his own power. Which means then that the second benefit, which would be escaping the corruption that is in the world through lust, follows the first And one man said this, it's likely an ongoing process. In fact, I think we could call it sanctification. Seems like we've already mentioned that before. We received all the grace and divine power we need to live a godly life when we trusted Christ in salvation. Now the outworking of that power in and through us is sanctification. So when he says in verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, we can look at all the promises that Christ gave to us in his walk here on the earth, and of course the promises dealing with eternity and all of that, um, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. So through Christ's power, through his provision of salvation, we can be saved. We can partake of the divine nature because it's through his effort. Through His righteousness. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You say, well, I haven't escaped that. He's made the means to. Because when a person is justified, when we receive the gift of justification, He begins to mold us back into His image. Spiritually. And it's so easy to look at what's going on in our lives, to look at how hard it is to say no to sin. Or a pastor even talked about this morning, uh, the temptation and all of that. And we can say, well, it's too hard. Or I can't get away from it. There's no escape. But the fact of the matter is, the escape is letting Him work in and through you. That's the hard part. So when you sit down to watch the same movies you used to watch and the Holy Spirit pricks your heart, that's sanctification. That's the process at least. When your coworkers start in on the dirty jokes or filthy communication that you used to participate in and you know your response should be to just walk away, that's sanctification. Or when that slow driver just cut you off and all you want to do is lay on the horn and give him a gesture that isn't known for being so kind. But you hold back because in your heart you recognize it's wrong to do that. That's sanctification. That God did not make you perfect the moment you were saved. But He began the process of working in you to change you into His image. And it happens. It is taking place every moment of every day. You know, I, I, I got to, th- it, this is something that I, it's always just boggles my mind, how the natural physical processes work at all times. So my truck, my little white truck has rust all over it. It's, it's beyond repair at this point. But a year ago, it didn't look quite so bad. A couple years before that, it didn't look quite so bad. When I first bought the truck, there's just a couple tiny little rust spots, but those rust spots didn't sleep when I slept. There was no point at which they stopped. Once rust starts, it just keeps going until something is done to stop it. That's how sanctification works in our lives. That God is not working in you this day and the next day He's off doing something else. But God is constantly working in you. The Holy Spirit is constantly uh, in your heart pricking you to say, no, you shouldn't do this. And yes, you should do this. Every moment of every day. When you start to look in the mirror and realize that your appearance doesn't honor the one who bought you and you begin to change it, that's sanctification. When you bless instead of curse, when you give instead of take, when you submit to authority instead of getting mad and rebelling, when you learn to accept suffering for the Christ of, cause of Christ gladly, that's sanctification. It's the same process that we saw Peter talking about in, regard, in the first letter in regards to their suffering and their persecution, that through all of that, God was still working to sanctify His people. And as much as our Uh, sinful nature, as much as our pride wants to say, no, I don't have to put up with this. I don't have to be persecuted. I don't deserve this. I haven't done anything wrong. Sometimes sanctification leads us to accept it. I can't possibly cover the vastness of human experience, but when sanctification takes place, when the process is working in you, you know it. And if the Holy Spirit is working in you, pricking your heart, trying to change your responses to life's problems, yet you ignore and reject Him, you're rejecting sanctification. You're hurting the process. And you could be quenching it in other Christians' lives as well. Now, we can look at the rust process and say, well, I need to do something to stop this process. It's not sleeping when I'm sleeping. It's always ongoing. And so I need to catch it early on by uh, scraping the rust off, using chemical cleaners and priming and painting and all of that kind of stuff. But the process of sanctification should not be stopped. One way or the other, If you've truly trusted in Christ, you will be transformed into His image one day. But rejecting or quenching that process today will have eternal consequences. Say, I'm not where I want to be, but is the process moving forward? Is the process going? Is the Holy Spirit working in your heart? Well, I know I'm not where I should be. Well, don't stop the process. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, I just I wasn't living like I should be and I knew there were things that were wrong in my life and so I just, you know, uh, how could I be involved in this ministry and still be living the way I am? So I, I, I just pull back from that ministry and pretty soon they've pulled back from everything and before you know it, they're not even in church. Well, that's not the way to keep the process going. And it may be something where if there's something wrong uh, that you're not right with God, and you may need to pull back from some ministries. You may need to pull back from some things you're doing. But the getting out of church and getting away from the Lord is not the way to fix the problem. You need to let the Holy Spirit work. The, your sin is not going to fix itself, but the Holy Spirit wants to fix it in you whether you are active in the process or not. And then there are those who'd say, well, I've obtained sinless perfection in this life. And we look at them and say, well, clearly they haven't. Say, well, I I, I can't get that way. There's no way that I will ever get to that point in my life. Well, God's not expecting you to be sinlessly perfect in this life. That's something that He'll do when He glorifies you in eternity. But your rejection or quenching of that process will have eternal consequences. So you can be justified, as we've seen, by simply placing your faith in the one who paid the price for your sin. And once you are justified, he will begin the process of sanctification. God has given us, he's already given us everything we need to live a godly life. He's already given us everything we need to serve him, to do what he expects us to do. It's going to require some effort. We'll see later on in this this chapter because uh, we're going to look at the faith that we have in Christ and we're going to have to add to it uh, virtue and knowledge and temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and charity. But you see, the process of that is what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in you. So your determination from the onset should be, Lord, work in me. Help me not to quench the Spirit. Help me not to reject the process. Thank you for my justification. Now, Lord, help me to live sanctified. Amen. And Next time we'll look at the sanctification process and how that it starts with faith and it ends or culminates really in love. And it's all... God's working in us let's pray Lord thank you so much for your grace thank you for your mercy and thank you for your word I pray you bless this invitation